What is the most complex skill that you can imagine? If you had to think about adding a skill to your already amazing repertoire, what, what would that be? What, what seems just so far outside of your reach? <laughs> yeah, I can't do that either. I gave up a long time ago, right? Math, yeah, just out of reach. Maybe for you it's learning a language, let alone multiple languages. Have you ever met a polyglot, somebody who knows just multiple languages after languages after language? That seems out of reach to me. What about the idea of learning an instrument? Like the idea of getting your left hand and your right hand to do two different things at the same time seems wildly out of reach. What about the skills necessary to be a high-performing athlete? You're like, Matt, it's not going to happen. I was born with two left feet. I trip over myself. I'm still learning how to walk. The micro-precision of timing and muscle memory and coordination just seems out of reach. Maybe it's business savvy. The right balance of ideation and time management and networking and entrepreneurial prowess just seems complex and out of reach. While all of these are complex and require thousands of hours to master, none of these are the most complicated thing that you'll ever do in life. David Pallison, who's a biblical counselor and author, answers the question this way. He says, learning how to live is the most complex skill imaginable. And I think he is spot on. You know why? Because it takes a lifetime to learn how to live. Life is a journey. You don't figure it out in an instant. We're talking about your boy, right? It takes a lifetime to learn how to be a man. And the beauty of the gospel is that God meets us on that journey to walk with us and to transform us into the image of Christ. See, that's what we're looking at in this new series, The Four Gs. We are learning how to live. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. Let me give you an easy definition. That's kind of a big word, sanctification. Theologians like to throw it around. Let me give you an easy definition. We'll have it up on the screen. Sanctification is God's transforming grace to make us more like Jesus. Let me say that again. It's God's transforming grace to make us more like Jesus. But that begs the question, how? How does God do that work of change? And we looked last week that God uses a variety of things in our life and throughout our life uh, as his children to transform and change us into the image of Christ. So there'll be times in your life that God uses the faithful presence of people who just know how to rightly balance truth and love to sharpen us. You ever had a relationship like that? It just seemed like when you met with them, it was just like God was speaking through them to sharpen and to shape you. Often God will change us and shape us through struggle and suffering. See, suffering has this way of clarifying the things that matter in life. And when we walk through the fires of struggle and suffering, our character is, is, is sharpened. We, we learn what it means to persevere our very faith is forged in those fires. Sometimes it'll feel like God just reaches right down into your heart and brings about that change. Maybe there was a habit that you couldn't shake and then boom, one day God just reached in and took that out. Praise God for those moments. And in different seasons of your life, one of these might take the lead to bring about God's work of transformation in your life. 
Now today in this series, we've been talking about how God uses his truth from his word to change and shape us. See, in his mercy, God takes the truth of scripture about who he is and he works it down deep into the core of who we are in order to uproot deep-seated unbelief. See, there's this principle that God has worked into the fabric of creation that unhealthy roots produce unhealthy fruit, right? You, if you see a tree with unhealthy fruit, it's got a root problem. If you see a tree with great fruit and it tastes good, you know those roots are good and healthy. And it's the same in us. When we see unhealthy fruit in our lives, we have to get at the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. The unhealthy root systems in our heart need to be uprooted by the truth of the gospel. Then, when the unhealthy roots are taken out, healthy seeds can be planted and nurtured so that healthy fruit of change is the result. That's how we are hardwired. And so last week, I introduced these four questions to help us do the hard work of diagnosing our hearts so that we can uproot unbelief in order to replace them with good fruit of belief and truth. That's essential if we're going to have lasting change in our life. So here's those four questions again. The first one kind of goes hand in hand. Who is God and what has he done? Right? Who is he and what has he done? And then we ask, who am I in light of God's work? And then we're at a place to ask, how should I live in light of who I am? These four questions help us apply the eternal truths about God into the everyday stuff of our life. Who is God and what has he done? Who am I? And then how do I live? And that'll be the framework as we walk through this passage of scripture. And when we do this, we learn how to live and how by God's grace, he finishes that good work that he starts in us. And so today we're gonna look at our next G in our series, God is glorious. Like last week, we looked at how great God is. And because of his greatness, because he is in control, that frees us up so that we don't have to be in control, right? Now today we're gonna look at the reality that God is glorious. Now when we speak about glory, it's one of those words that we might say a lot, but you ask people, hey, define glory, and it feels slippery, right? We don't really exactly know how to define glory. It's actually one of those words that shows up all over the Bible to describe God, that he's a God of glory, and last week we looked at Psalm 145 and it told, it told us that God is great. And in the very next verses, it talks about his glory. In fact, if you read the whole Psalm, Psalm 145, you'll see all of the, the G's in our series that God is great, that he's glorious, that he's good, and that he's gracious. I encourage you this week, read that Psalm, meditate on who God is. But look what it says in Psalm 145 verse three. Great is the Lord greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So what does glory mean? In the Hebrew Bible, the word for glory is this Hebrew word called kavod. You can say that this week at your work and you'll sound real smart. Right? Kavod. And it literally means heavy and weighty, like something with substance. Now, it can be used to speak of physical objects that have weight and significance, but more often it's used metaphorically to speak about something that has significance. 
It's to speak about things that really matter. When something really matters and has significance, it has a glory to it. And when you move over into the New Testament, it uses a word called doxa, which means brightness and splendor. And again, you can use the word doxa to speak about bright and brilliant things, but more often, doxa is used to speak about uh, about metaphorical things that have brilliance and significance. And when we take these two words together, it really helps us understand glory. That when we think about something that has glory, that there's a weight to it. There's a significance to it. It's, in, it's important. And yet when we look at it, it kind of has this brilliance to it, a splendor to it. Glory is the display of greatness that leads to delight. See, when you see something that's glorious, you're looking at something that's great. And when you behold it, there's a delight involved. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples to help you understand. When the Patriots made the biggest comeback in NFL history in the fourth quarter to win the Super Bowl, no matter what you think about the Patriots, there was a glory to that. It was something uncommon. It, it hadn't been done like that before. Nobody saw it coming. How many people turned the game off at halftime because they said, man, this is over. Yeah, right there. And then he woke up the next day going, what happened, right? Last year's World Series was like that for me. Game five in particular. I've never seen so many home runs in a game. I mean, just back and forth, back and forth. Even the people in the game kind of felt like we are caught up in something glorious. It's unique. And the moment itself is something to be savored. A newborn child has glory, right? The Hamels just welcomed their newborn child this morning at 4.47 a.m. And when you look at a new child, you see this new creation and it's intimately, it's a part of you and yet the significance and the potential of this new life draws you in. There's glory. Kings have glory, don't they? Heads of state, there's, there's a prestige and an honor attached to the office. When they walk into the room, Again, regardless of what you think about them, everything kind of changes. There's a weight about them. Their decisions carry weight. Their words can make things happen or not happen. They walk with a greater responsibility and a significance, and there's glory there. The sun, the sun has glory. It's both massive and weighty and brilliant and bright. Our world literally circles around it. I don't know if you've ever seen mountains, but they exude glory, don't they? Their beauty and their size just captivate you. I'll never forget, I grew up in, uh, in Houston, which is literally below sea level. I had never been anywhere else, and then I flew to Colorado, and I was, it was just, it was unbelievable. I just couldn't stop looking at them. And though I didn't know at the time, but I was seeped in glory, just looking at these things. Take the Grand Canyon. And it's dripping with glory. Do you know people come all over the world just to look at it? It's beautiful. And the reason you travel there is simply what? Just to be there. Just to see it. And no one who sees the Grand Canyon afterwards says, meh, it's okay. I thought it was just a big hole in the ground. Nothing to see here, right? No one comes back from the Grand Canyon and says that. The glory captivates you. It has a gravity to it. It draws you in. What are you doing in that moment? You're delighting in a display of greatness. 
See, each of these examples gets at a slice of the glory pie, but each one still fails to capture the totality of the essence of God's glory. See, when we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about a display of the greatness of God that leads to our delight. See, last week we looked at the greatness of Jesus and we were just moved to delight in him. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the fact that he is the most significant and the most defining reality. He is what matters most. He is truly great. He is truly good. He is what grace means. In this sense, for God to be glorious means that he is weighty. He is supremely consequential and impressive. His splendor and his grandeur is unmatched. There's nothing like him. To speak of God's glory is to speak of the totality of his awesomeness all at once. It's the fact that he's incomparable. And there's a beauty about him that our words just, it's like we're just trying to throw words to cap to get at it. But, we, but when we really feel God's glory, we go, words fail. I can't quite capture it all at once. To give glory to God is to rightly attribute worth to him. It's to worship him and declare there's nothing, there's no one else greater than you. You see, you're starting to realize the glory of God when you see God and you realize that there's a a reality to him that you have to bow to. You're starting to get the glory of God when you realize he doesn't move around you. You move around him. He's someone that you have to discover. He's not someone that you just build and construct in your mind. You come to him and he tells you who he is. He's someone you accept as he is, not someone that changes to fit your idea of God. So many times when I interact with people, they go, well, yeah, that's not my idea of God. They haven't rightly seen his glory. You don't construct God. God is and we accept him. This glory of God, this God of glory is above your likes and your dislikes. This is a God you submit to out of reverence and awe. And what makes him so glorious is that in our submission, we're not crushed. We actually find our greatest delight. Submitting to God is not a, uh, an exercise in duty, but it's actually one of delight. When you rightly see his glory, he becomes the all-defining reality and everything in your life moves around him. Everything is judged in your life as either something that helps me see him more clearly, that helps me in my walk with him, or something that hinders my relationship with him. When God matters to you more than anything else, that's when you're starting to comprehend his glory. That's significance. That's weight. That's what really and ultimately matters. God's glory is the display of his greatness that leads to our delight. Now, with that understanding of his glory, let's jump into our text in Colossians. See, remember, we've been using Colossians as our anchor text for this series. And if you remember, last week I told you that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter around AD 60, which is about three decades after the resurrection of Jesus. Paul wrote this letter to encourage this young church who was faithful and they were fervent, but yet given their youth, they were in need of being grounded in sound doctrine and to receive good counsel on how to live out their faith. 
Last week, we looked at this amazing portrait of the greatness of Christ. Remember some of the uh, lines in there? Um, He talked about how Christ was preeminent, how he was the one um, who um, all things were, are held together by him, that he's the one who is before all things and in all things and all things are for him. There's this greatness about Christ. Now look with me at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Okay, let me unpack that quickly. The New Testament gives account to the suffering that Paul endured as a disciple. So when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, we know from scripture that Paul endured a lot of suffering. He was beaten with stones and whips on multiple occasions, often left for dead. He was shipwrecked, lost at sea for a couple of days at a time. He was publicly shamed and ostracized for his faith and love for Jesus. And yet, in light of all that, Paul could say, I actually rejoice in my sufferings because they filled up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings. Now, that might be a little bit confusing. Here's what he means by that. Paul isn't saying that the sacrifice and death of Christ was insufficient to procure our salvation. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean that the suffering and death of Jesus was insufficient for our redemption. Christ's suffering and death on the cross fully and completely satisfies the necessary requirements of our redemption. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus completely and totally deals with sin and guilt and shame. But what Paul is saying is that the church is the body of Christ. And like Christ, the church is going to have to suffer uh, as well. Jesus spoke plainly about this in his time before he died. He told his disciples, listen, the cup that I'm going to drink of suffering, you're going to drink the exact same cup. This is so good. He's giving his disciples a heads up and saying, listen, don't think that when I leave, it's going to be all puppy dogs and roses. There's going to be hard times coming. And you should expect that because you are the body. You are my body. And so you will suffer as well. Jesus was persecuted and his body, the church, will also suffer. But the reality is that when the church suffers, God takes that persecution and works it to further his purposes, even if we can't see what God is doing. So we look at the book of Acts and we see that the persecution of the early church actually helped to spread and advance the gospel to the point where we believe that Jesus said he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Persecution has never shut down his church. In fact, it only works to further the gospel. It's been used to exponentially expand the church and to purify her. That's why Paul can say, I rejoice in suffering for Christ because I know that God works good for those who suffer for and with Jesus. And then Paul goes on to say that God had appointed him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, which just simply means anyone non-Jewish. So that's probably most of us in this room, that God had given Paul the task to say, okay, I want you to be the first one to take this to non-Jews so that it can continue to spread to every tribe and to every tongue and every nation. 
And he says that the mystery of this gospel was hidden for many years until the appointed time. But now the time is here. The veil has been lifted. The mystery has been revealed. And what God has been progressively unfolding in his plan of redemption, in his plan to redeem what was lost, to fix what was broken, now in Christ it all comes to a head. His plan is ready to be revealed and put on full display. Look at verse 27. To them, these Gentiles, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Don't miss this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now remember everything I just told you about what glory is. God has revealed the mystery of the gospel and it is rich in its glory. The gospel is that Christ is our source of true glory. What this is saying is that he himself, Jesus, is our glory. And if you're following logically, what he's saying is God is able to give us glory in Christ because he himself is glorious. Think about it. You can't give what you don't have, right? It's just impossible. So the reason that Christ can be our glory is because he himself is glorious. So we're looking at that question, who is God and what has he done? We realize that he is glorious. He's in a position to give that glory. And he's revealed that glory to us, not in some impersonal and indirect way. You know, he didn't just write it in the sky and say, hey, in case you forgot, I'm glorious. Know that, believe that. But he has personally and directly revealed that to us in our hearts. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everything leading up to these verses has been talking about the greatness of Christ. Remember, we looked at it last week. He was described as the image of the invisible God, the one who created all things, the one who redeemed all things, that he was preeminent. He holds all things together. If you look throughout the New Testament, his glory is described elsewhere as well. Look at, uh, at John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is truly great. And what did we say glory was? It's the display of that greatness that leads to our delight. That's what glory is. It's, it's, it's when, see, he's great in and of himself, but when that greatness goes on display for us to see, that's his glory. And when we rightly see it, it leads to our delight. Who is God in this passage? He's one who's not concealed himself and kept his glory to himself, but he's one who's revealed it to us. And more than just revealing it to us, in some impersonal way. He shared it with us in a nearness, in an intimacy in Christ Jesus. God is a generous and giving God who desires that we would know him. He has brought his glory near to us so that we can experience it in a real and personal way. He's so glorious that he can create and sustain the universe at this micro, huge level and yet he's personal and intimate to speak quietly and directly right into our hearts. 
God is glorious. It's who he is by very definition. His greatness is on full display and he's not hidden it. He's not kept it to himself. He's revealed it and get this, he's invited us in to delight in it. That's who God is. That's what he's done. So now we ask, who are we in light of that? In fact, I actually wanna read verse 27 again because this verse is the, the hinge of the passage. It's the keystone and in it we see who we are. Look with me again, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did you know that everybody deep down wants glory? Like I could tell, when I was describing glory to you a few minutes ago, you were all leaned in. I know you couldn't see it, but I can see every one of you. You leaned in, you know why? There's a deep down hunger in you for glory. We crave it, we seek it, we want to be significant. We want to know that we matter. We want to be needed. We want to be important. We want to know that that project at work really does depend on us. When I was a kid, I wanted to hit the game-winning home run. Bases loaded, full count, bottom of the ninth, right? It's what fuels the twirl in a little girl as she's dressed up like a princess and spinning for you. Look, Dad, look at me. It's why we take that last look in the mirror before we go out, right? Tomorrow on Marathon Monday, people are running for glory, aren't they? It's why people stand in long lines for days just for a shot to get on American Idol. It's why we want to land the joke with the perfect punchline and have everyone on the floor laughing. It's because we want glory. And our hunger for glory doesn't just explain why we want to win the hearts in a room. It actually drives our fears of being publicly shamed and humiliated. Our drive for glory is why most of you would list one of your highest fears as being right here and speaking publicly. It's always on people's like top 10 fears. Some people are more afraid of doing this than dying. It's why we're terrified of being obscure and unknown. It's why we fear failure and do everything we can do to avoid being made fun of. It's all related to our desire and our hunger for glory. And let me tell you something. Did you know that God made you to need and to want glory? That's not a wrong desire. God has specifically and intimately made you to want and desire and to need glory. We're made for it. And that's why Christ said, that's why Paul says, our glory is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because he knows we need it. He knows we all long for it. And the good news of the gospel is that God desires to give you the very glory that you need. And he doesn't want you to settle for lesser glories. You see, we do that in our life. We settle for these pseudo glories that give us some temporary feeling of worth. So yeah, when we do hit that home run or when we do make that play or when we do land that joke, we, we're trafficking in a little bit of glory and it feels good. But what happens? The next day happens and people have moved on. That glory doesn't last, right? Sometimes we look back and days and years pass and go, those were the glory days, right? And it leads to despair because we go, will I ever get there again? Pseudo-glories give you temporary worth, 
But God wants to give you true and greater glory. And don't miss this. He wants to give you himself. Your true glory, lasting glory, is Christ in you. It's the hope. It's all we've got. God's desire is to satisfy your hunger for glory with himself, not with anything else. Despite what God has done to reveal his glory, we live in a world where his glory is concealed, isn't it? I love our confession of sin today, that we push it to the side, that we don't rightly see who he is and who we are. Sin has blinded us from seeing God's glory for the beauty and greatness that it is. And so as a result, we diminish his greatness And in doing so, we diminish his glory. And when we do that, because we don't have glory to satisfy us, we try to find glory somewhere else. We all long to be significant. Everybody longs to be important. And that longing is right and good. God has placed it inside every single heart in this room precisely because you do matter and you are significant. That feeling you have that that I matter and I'm significant is because God has put it in your heart so that you know he loves you. You are significant. You do matter. That's why we intuitively seek meaning and purpose in life. But when we try to seek glory outside of God, it leads to this insatiable craving for approval and praise from others that twists us and unchecked, it actually begins to enslave us. When we don't believe that Christ is our only hope of glory, we will seek it elsewhere. And so we look to others to declare our greatness. We look to others to delight in us so that we can for maybe a minute feel glorious. We turn family and friends into glory givers, don't we? We look to them to find all of our significance and meaning. We try to perform and impress people so that they'll build us up and put our greatness on display. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you act differently around different people? You know why that is? Because you desire them to praise you and applaud you, so you perform in front of them. Perhaps it's because you so desperately want their approval and attention. It also causes us sometimes to hide our true self and pretend to be someone that we know we're not. See, don't you see, this doesn't actually build you up. It actually diminishes you as you present a false representation of who you are. And it actually enslaves you to the person who's giving you that glory. Because now you're dependent upon them. You're hanging on their every word. They become your defining reality. You feel good when they speak good of you, don't you? And when you feel like you don't matter and they forget about you, you become small. It's enslaving and exhausting, trying to live to gain approval from others. A desire for glory can also lead to crippling fear. That's why we try to avoid humiliation and it leads us to avoid confrontation when we need to. It it, it drives us not to have the hard conversations. It leads us not to try or to risk when we really should be. We'd rather just be neutral than to be seen as a failure. I don't wanna put myself out there and risk not feeling good. And so we avoid what we should be doing. And all of this happens because we seek significance and approval elsewhere instead of finding all of our worth and all of our value and all of our glory in Christ. In those moments when we try to find our glory elsewhere, the lie that's down in our heart that we're believing is that Christ is not enough. Christ in me is not the hope of glory. So I'm going to find it elsewhere. 
His glory is simply not enough for me. Now, we don't say that out loud. We don't tweet that. Christ, you're not enough for me. I'm gonna go seek glory elsewhere. That's not what we do. But when we're seeking it elsewhere, that's the lie we're believing in our heart. The reason Jesus can be the hope of glory for us is because he has secured the Father's approval for us and we cannot, and hear me, need not look elsewhere. Look at me, son or daughter of God. You need to hear this this morning. Did you know that there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more? And at the same time, there's nothing you could ever do to make him love you less. In Jesus, he has secured the eternal approval from the Father for you. I'm coaching Little, uh, Little League this year again, and uh, we started, you know, it's not really spring yet, but we're trying to get out there and hit the ball and get, uh, get warmed up for the season. And I was walking back down this little path at Nippermar, and I was, I was reminded of a conversation I had with my boys last year. In one of our games, one of my boys had an awesome game. I mean, it was like he was a vacuum. Every ground, it didn't matter. It's like he was just scooping them up, throwing, up, throwing them right to the first base. I mean, he was just scoring out after out after out. And at bat, he went five for five, just crushing it. RBIs, runs scored. We demolished that team. And a lot, I mean, he was clearly MVP of the game. Got the game ball and everything. I was so proud of him. At the same time, my other son, who played on the same team, had a horrible game. He couldn't buy an out if his life depended on it. And he struck out every at-bat. And on the way to the car, we're walking towards it. And I've got one son on my left who's just reveling in his own glory and another one on the right with his head down. And I looked at each one and I said, guys, I'm so proud of you. And my son who had a bad game said, dad, why are you proud of me? I didn't do anything good today. And I told him, son, I am proud of you simply because what? You're my son. There's nothing you could ever do to make me love you less. And then I also knew I had to look at the other son and say, buddy, I'm proud of you too, but guess what? I'm proud of you not because you had a great game. I'm proud of you simply because you're my son. I never want you to think my love for you and my pride for you is contingent on your success and achievements. There's nothing you could ever do to make me love you more. I love you with all the love that I have simply because you're my son. That's how God loves us. That's his glory. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You don't have to earn his approval. It's right there. Jesus is our glory simply because he has secured the approval and love and acceptance of the Father. Think about this. Everyone in Christ is set on a trajectory of glory. Why? Because he is. He is glory by definition. And he is on a trajectory of glory. And everyone who's joined to him is on that same trajectory. That's why Paul says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says it over and over in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples so that you just don't think this is an isolated thing. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Romans 8, 16 through 17, Paul says it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness in our spirits that we are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. So we know who God is. He's glorious and he's revealed it to us. So who are we? We're one of two things. Apart from Christ, we are glory craved. We're seeking approval from anyone and anything that'll give us the time of day. But in Christ, we're fully accepted, fully loved, secure and grounded, loved and cherished with all the glory we could ever need. So who are you this morning? Are you in Christ, secured and grounded with all the hope of glory you could ever need? Or do you feel like you're floundering out there, just hoping that somebody, anybody, would say you matter? Now, how do we live? Last couple verses, Paul gives some exhortations. Look with me at verse 28. Him we proclaim, Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Look at verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul wraps up this whole section by saying, look, all I have to offer you is Christ. It's him that I proclaim. Jesus is the proclamation. He's the message. That's what I have to give you. Paul's desire is that they would be mature in Christ. Now, when we think about maturity, don't think perfection. We are not going to be perfect in this life. That's what we talked about last week about glorification, that day when Christ brings all of the healing into our body that we are totally and completely free from the presence of sin, the penalty of sin, and the power of sin. That day is coming. But maturity doesn't merely mean just doing better than the guy next to me. Right, And we can do that sometimes in the church and go, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not like that guy. That's not what maturity here means. Maturity means whole and healthy, able to produce good fruit. Christ is, uh, Paul is toiling and struggling to see this young church to maturity. It describes a person who's rooted and grounded in Christ. And what we need, you see Paul here says, I give you warnings and exhortations. I'm gonna give you instruction and correction. Family of God, that's what we need. You need to be told where to go and also be corrected when we go down the wrong path. That's, that's what it means to raise a child. And in the same way as children of God, we need that kind of instruction and we need that correction when we stray as well. We have to be taught the right way to live and be corrected when we stray. Paul says he also writes to encourage their hearts to put courage in them. This is key. Listen, when he's talking about the heart, he's not merely talking about their feelings. 
In American culture, we think about the heart and we think emotions, feeling. But when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's actually talking about the very center of a person, that place where your desires are, where your motives are, where your uh, thinking is, in addition to the feelings. It's like the central core of who you are. And what Paul's saying is, I want this truth that God is glorious to go all the way down into your core, that it would soak in to the roots. See, when we see the unhealthy fruit of glory craving in our life, we've got to find what is the unbelief and lies in our heart that we're believing so that we can uproot them. Like I said earlier, we have to see that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. David Pallison says says this, and I think it's great. It greatly helps all of us to know that God typically works on something specific and not everything all at once. When I first became a Christian, I was confessing all this sin to this uh, guy who started to disciple me, and I said, Matt, I have this wrong with me, this wrong with me, this wrong with me. I mean, I just started listening it out. I was like, what, what do I do? What do I begin? And he said, hey, calm down. The way the Lord works is gracious and tender. He's gonna focus on one area at a time because it's overwhelming to think about everything all at once. So when you think about learning how to live, Just focus on one thing at a time and allow the Spirit of God to work. He'll work on one thing at a time so you don't get discouraged. Paul also says we can't be discouraged and fooled by lies either, plausible arguments, things, pseudo-truths, right, that uh, become easy to believe. That's why it's so important that you be rooted in the truth of Scripture, to know what is true and what is not. That's why we, we, we spend so much time th- talking about living in these gospel communities, because on my own, I'm easily blinded. I've got blind spots all over my life, and I need people in my life to speak truth and love to me, to point out things in my life when I am craving glory and attention from others. When we settle for lesser glory, We need believers and brothers and sisters in Christ to remind us, no, there's true glory for you here in Christ. So when I see the unhealthy fruit of seeking approval at work or in the home or in the church or anywhere else for that matter, or when I know, when I'm longing to feel important, when I'm gripped by fear thinking that someone will think less of me, I need to trace that unhealthy fruit all the way down into the roots of my unbelief. And when I see it, repent of it. Repent of believing that my glory is wrapped up in me instead of finding my healing and hope for glory in Christ. I need to repent of trying to create glory for myself instead of receiving the approval and the glory that's given to me in Christ. Striving to build a name for myself instead of receiving the name that he's given me. See, the good news is that Christ has secured all the glory we could ever need. Martin Luther summarized it like this, and we'll close. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. And the process is not yet finished, but it is going on. And this is not the end, but it's the road. And all does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. See, there might be areas of your life where you go, I don't see all that glory, but friend, family, know that it is coming. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to another 
And because our hope and our glory is secured in Christ, we know that it's ours. You matter to God, and that is all that matters. Let's pray.